June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. CBS News Face the Nation in 60 seconds. Are you looking to hit your fitness goals? Let Beachbody On Demand help you get there. No need to go to a gym or schedule a class. Everything is right there on your personal device. They have programs for any fitness level. And the workouts range from cardio to weight training to yoga, low impact, and even dance. There are over 600 different workouts on the platform. Beachbody On Demand even provides comprehensive nutrition plans to help you meet your goals because working out is just part of the equation. Access to information on meal prep, variety of recipes, and simple but proven eating plans. You need to give this service a try. Right now, listeners can get a free trial membership when you text FTN to 303030. You will get full access to this entire platform for free. All the workouts and nutrition information free. Just text FTN to 303030. Text FTN to 303030. Today on Face the Nation, anger and anguish following the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting leads to a big push for tougher gun laws. Will this effort succeed where others have failed? We'll have the latest on the missed opportunities that could have saved lives or prevented last week's killing of 14 students and three adults. Then we'll talk to two Florida lawmakers, Parkland area Democrat Ted Deutsch and Republican Brian Mast, an Afghanistan war veteran who says this shooting has changed his views. Will others in Congress follow? And what do they think of the president's call for arming teachers in the classroom and his other ideas to end gun violence in schools? We have to have offensive capability to take these people out rapidly before they can do this kind of damage. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson served as an advisor to the NRA after the Sandy Hook massacre. He'll be here, too. What have we learned from past mass shootings that can help us find solutions now? We'll talk to parents of victims and survivors of Sandy Hook, Columbine, and other incidents involving gun violence. We'll also take a closer look at the horrors in Syria after a massive bombing campaign by the Assad regime. And we'll have plenty of analysis on all the news of the week. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan. We've got a lot to get to today, and we begin in Parkland, Florida, with CBS News correspondent Omar Villafranca with the latest in the investigation into how federal and local authorities handled the Nicholas Cruz case, both before and after the shooting. Omar? Good morning, Margaret. Students will be allowed on campus today for the first time since the shooting, and it's part of a reorientation to get them ready for classes, which are expected to start on Wednesday. More than 100 students marched past Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where 17 of their classmates and teachers were killed last week. The students are trying to keep the pressure on politicians to reform gun laws. 
This weekend, the scrutiny over the police and FBI's missed signals about confessed gunman Nicholas Cruz intensified. Earlier this week, Broward Deputy Scott Peterson, an armed school resource officer at Douglas, resigned after school video cameras showed him taking cover outside during the attack. The Sheriff's Department is also investigating allegations from the responding Coral Springs Police Department that when they arrived on the scene, three Broward deputies were outside the building with their weapons drawn. In an interview on CNN's State of the Union, Broward Sheriff Scott Israel addressed the charges. We will look at all the actions or, or inactions of every single deputy and leader on our agency, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, and we'll make some decisions. But right now, all I can tell you is, during the, during the killing, there was uh, while the killer was on campus with this horrific killing, uh, there was one deputy, one armed person within the proximity of that school, and that was Peterson. Local law enforcement officials are also looking into missed warnings about the shooter, like this one made last November. He put the gun in the head of his brother before, so it's not the first time. And he did that to his mom. It's not the first time he put a gun in somebody's head. Despite all the warnings and missed signals, all of Cruz's gun purchases appear to be legal under current law. Margaret? Omar, thank you. We turn now to Democrat Ted Deutsch, who represents the congressional district where the shooting occurred, and his House colleague, Brian Mast, a Republican. His district is north of Parkland, and they join us from the memorial near Stoneman Douglas High School. Uh, good morning to you both, gentlemen. I want to start with you, Congressman Deutsch. According to the Broward uh, Sheriff's Office, 23 calls came in regarding this shooter or his family. Uh, Sheriff Israel told CNN this morning, I've given amazing leadership to this agency. Would you agree with that? Well, I'll tell you what the sheriff needs to needs to do, and he, he's doing it. I talked to the sheriff last night about this. We need to find out exactly what happened, uh, why it was that there were so many signals, not just from the visits, but the social media postings. There, there's so much that uh, that has happened. The FBI has admitted that the call came in and that was missed. All of that is is just a it's one more blow to a grieving community. But it also we can do two things. We can continue to figure out what happened to make sure that never happens again and still take meaningful action to ensure that weapons of war like the one that that this shooter used uh, can never be used by another in another mass shooting anywhere in any school or any other place in America. Will you be getting a briefing from the FBI on why they missed these signals? Uh, we will. We'll be getting a briefing from the FBI. Uh, I also expect, and I know those of us, uh, the delegation from down here especially, uh, is interested in getting a full briefing uh, once all of the information is available about, about these missed signs, about what happened. It's, it's vital for us to do that at the same time that we work together, inspired by these survivors, to take action to prevent this from happening again. Congressman Mast, I want to bring you in here because you've had a change of heart in the wake of Parkland. You're now calling for an, a ban on the AR-15 and also an increase in the age limit for purchase. Why and did you, in this case, change your view? Look, we've seen a lot of shootings out there. We've seen what's happened here in Parkland. We've seen what happened in Las Vegas. We saw what happened in Orlando. And for me personally, it pains me to know that I went out there willing to defend my country, willing to give everything with almost the exact same weapon that's used to go out there and unfortunately 
kill children here in Parkland. And I think there's a very real opportunity here for response and here for action. And that's what really brought me to, to my change of heart in talking about this. I just can't stand to see that personally. But for those two items that you are supporting, it doesn't appear that uh, your party or your congressional leadership is behind you on that. Do you have a sense that any other Republican rank and file members will join you in this call? So let's look at one of the ways that we can bring people into this conversation, not just my, my fellow rank and file members, Republican leadership in the House and the Senate, but also the president. You know, what I love about my president is that he is a man of action. And I can tell you that as veterans and soldiers, when we see a chance to save life, we don't hesitate. We don't have a conversation. We go out there and do it. I think that's what the travel ban has been all about. It's been about saving lives in our community and in our country. Let's take that exact same model and apply it right now to this situation. But you don't, you don't have any numbers of who's with right you now. at this point? Because the president hasn't called for an assault weapons numbers, ban. But I think, we, I think we can get the president on board and members of Congress on board to say, let's put that same kind of pause on board right now, where we look at who's having access, what do they have access to? What were the failures that went on with the FBI and in the ATF and in other state agencies and in the states? What's everything that's going on there? Let's get back to the American people after this pause with sensible regulation, with sensible solutions, because we are going to look at this in a very real way. It made sense in the case of terrorists coming into this country. I think it should make sense in looking at guns. Do either of you gentlemen believe that teachers, even trained teachers, should be armed? I, I don't. Uh, the answer, the, the shift to arming teachers is a distraction. It's a distraction from the important discussion about all of the, the things that can be done right now, this week when we go back to Washington, on mental health, on banning bump stocks, universal background checks, uh, preventing people on the terror watch list from getting guns. Those aren't controversial. Everyone supports them. So that's what we need to focus on. But the important point here is because of these young leaders, the ground is shifting. Members of Congress are now willing to stand up and, and be as offended as everyone else when the millionaire lobbyist who runs the NRA goes to a political convention and says that people like me and Congressman Mast who want to take action to support kids don't care about children. But They're even after Sandy Hook, uh, 15 Democrats voted against an assault weapons ban. This isn't simply about the NRA at this point. I, I, as I said, though, the ground is shifting. It's, it's every member of Congress in the Senate who's going to hear from these kids. They're, they've been to Tallahassee. They're coming to Washington. They're going to have face-to-face conversations. Uh, they're important conversations where they will impress upon them the need to take action. Look, the fact that there are now more than a dozen companies who have severed their yeah. relationship with the gun corporations that run the NRA tells you that things are starting to change. People are standing up to save lives. All right, I think there is room for this conversation. There are great candidates in terms of former Marines, former law enforcement, people that already have uh, concealed carry permits. We Do have you to agree be that teachers should be armed, Because teachers Matt? are people too. Should teachers That's be armed? That's what I'm saying. I think some teachers are... Some teachers are the right candidates for this, absolutely, that have had training, that have the desire to this. But remember, they're people, too. They can leave a firearm laying around. They don't necessarily have training in identifying the threat and identifying the innocent. And you have to make sure that they get the appropriate level of training. Well, thank you both for joining us today for this conversation. We want to turn now uh, to a group of people whose lives have been impacted directly by gun violence and who have been moved to do something about it. 
Austin Eubanks was a 17-year-old student at Columbine High School when two of his classmates opened fire in 1999, wounding him and killing 13. He is now the chief operating officer at Foundry Treatment Center, an addiction recovery facility out in Colorado. Nicole Hockley's son, Dylan, was among the 20 children killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, in December of 2012. She co-founded Sandy Hook Promise, a group working to protect children from gun violence. Andy Parker's daughter, Allison, was a reporter for CBS affiliate WDBJ in Roanoke, Virginia, when she was shot and killed during a live broadcast in 2015. Andy's now an activist, and he helped start for Allison, an educational foundation named after his daughter. And Michelle Gay lost her daughter, Josephine, in the Sandy Hook Massacre. A former teacher, she co-founded Safe and Sound Schools following her daughter's death. And joining us now is John Mina from Orlando. He is the chief of police for the Orlando Police Department, a job he held back in June 2016 when a gunman entered Pulse Nightclub and killed 49 people. Nicole, I want to start with you. After Sandy Hook, people said this has to be different. This was an attack on children. People now are saying that about Parkland. It feels different. Politically, do you think it is? I I do feel the difference uh, because I think there's a difference between adults advocating for their children versus children advocating for themselves. And these are articulate teenagers sharing their experience and demanding that the adults listen to them. So I think the politicians need to stop their uh, nonsense fighting and instead, you know, just kind of shut up and listen a little bit to these kids and listen to what they're demanding because this can't continue. We can't keep letting our kids die and feel unsafe in their schools. And you met with a number of these activists in Florida. I I did meet with some of them and their energy and their drive, um, that energized me. Um, because, you know, I've been in this fight for five years. They're at the start of a very long journey, but they have um, tools uh, in terms of social media and stuff that I didn't really have at at my fingertips. They are organizing and mobilizing at an incredibly rapid rate, and uh, and they're not listening to what other people are telling them to say. They're speaking for themselves. They're being authentic, and I think that has power. Michelle, do you see the student activism in the same way? I do, and interestingly enough, um, in in the school safety space, when we founded uh, Safe and Sound Schools in the, the spring following the tragedy, the first and probably most powerful group that we were hearing from was was students. Um, so we've been working with students now for five years. We just released a, a youth council program that came out this fall. Um, so we're grateful that a lot of those councils were already established prior to this tragedy and that the kids have this platform to speak in their communities. But I would agree with Nicole. It is, a, it is different this time because, because they are organized, because they are speaking up, and we want to hear what they have to say. Andy, after your daughter's death, you became politically active, so did Allison's fiancé. Where do you think that this activism should be focused? Is it at the the local and state level, or is it here in Washington? Uh, Margaret, it has to be all of the above. And we have to give law enforcement the tools that they need to prevent this kind of tragedy from happening. And one of them, ironically, uh, Marco Rubio brought it up uh, in the town hall last week, is a gun violence restraining order. And, you know, the, what a lot of people don't know is that with all the, uh, the alarms and the, and the red flags and the warnings about this shooter in Florida, he was, never, he was never arrested for anything. So legally, 
law enforcement can't go in and remove weapons. And with the GVRO, the gun violence restraining order, they can. Uh, I hope that, that this changes the equation because Barbara and I uh, testified in front of a Virginia Senate committee on this very issue. The chairman of the committee looked at me and said, we're sorry for your loss. And then they voted it down uh, on party lines. Same thing with a, a, a young woman who survived the Las Vegas shooting was in tears saying, please ban bump stocks. They did the same thing to her. So it, you know, at this point, the Republican Party, hopefully there'll be a change there, but they're the party of the NRA. I mean, that's just the fact. Austin, uh, what you lived through happened in the middle of an assault weapons ban, despite it. Uh, so when you hear these activists, these student activists in particular, call for a ban on specifically that, t- does that speak to you in any way? Do you say that's misguided? Or how do you think this should be focused? Well, it definitely speaks to me, and I'm really inspired by the level of activism that I've seen. The, the problem that I have is I think that we get so laser-focused on either one of two sides. It's either gun control or mental health, and then we, nothing ever gets done. So I think that we do have a problem with accessibility to these weapons, but specifically I think we have a problem to accessibility to high-capacity magazines. We have to bring down the number of shots that somebody can fire before reloading, and I think that's exceptionally important. Beyond that, we have to look at why this issue is occurring, and we have to go all the way back to the way that we're educating and socializing young men. Mm -hmm. And so what I really advocate for is appointing a nonpartisan group of experts who can study this issue comprehensively, and in the near term, we have to bring down the the loss of life, and by doing that, we can eliminate high-capacity magazines and assault weapons. At the federal or the local level? I believe at the federal level. You do. Um, Chief Mina, I, I want to come to you quickly before we go to a commercial break and then continue our conversation on the other side of it. But, uh, Chief, it, it sounds like there were just so many red flags, at least 23 calls to local authorities, flags raised to the FBI, in this case in Parkland. How hard is it to actually intervene as law enforcement? I mean, is this a matter of just local bureaucracy run amok, or is it a failure, a dereliction of duty? How do people understand this? Well, it's definitely a failure uh, of all the systems involved. You know, at the Orlando Police Department, I know uh, many other law enforcement agencies in Central Florida and across the nation, there are protocols in place for when we receive social media threats, for when we get some of these red flags. And I would tell you that, you know, we don't stop working until that threat is mitigated, until we get, you know, identify the person who made the threat, um, go talk to them, talk to their parents, uh, and go really hands-on with them. And in many cases, either arrest or commit that person um, for uh, an involuntary um, mental examination. The issue and some of the problems with that is even if we commit someone under the Baker Act uh, for a mental evaluation, uh, they can, you know, get their evaluation and probably be released in less than 72 hours and then still go and able to buy a firearm. So that loophole needs to be closed because uh, many of our law enforcement throughout the country have had uh, many success stories as far as uh, mitigating some of these threats and and seeing the red flags and working it till the very end, putting the person in custody or getting them evaluated. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then that person still being able to purchase a firearm. I want to go to Orlando and bring in uh, Chief Mina, who was uh, chief in that city uh, during the Pulse nightclub attack, which did involve the shooter using a semi-automatic weapon. Chief, I want to ask you, uh, this proposal to, at the state level, have skilled teachers be armed 
to you. Does that make a difference? No, I, I don't think that's a good idea. Our, our teachers are already have many responsibilities. It's their job to educate our students, and they do a great job of that. Um, our teachers aren't trained um, physically or mentally prepared uh, to handle firearms in a stressful situation. You know, law enforcement throughout the country, not only do they go through uh, you know, hours and months and weeks of training, but they they're also carry firearms every day and deal uh, and use their firearms and sometimes uh, in stressful situations. And you know, for a teacher to be educating students uh, one second and then be responsible for responding in a high-stress situation uh, with a firearm with uh, not mm-hmm. enough training training or mental preparation, I don't, I don't think is a good fit. I'm, I'm definitely against that. Michelle, you're a former former teacher. What do you think about arming educators? I would agree completely. I, I, I just, um, I, I understand that it's a community-based decision and that will always be our position at Safe and Sound Schools. We know that different communities are made up of different people with different backgrounds, uh, and, and there are different circumstances. Some of our school communities are facing you know, response times that, that may be up to 50 minutes. So I understand this need to look at all solutions, put them all on the table. But when I think very practically about myself sitting in a second grade classroom on the floor, crisscross applesauce with, with my students teaching reading, the last thing I, I would be ready for in, in the split second that it might happen is, is having to, to pull out a firearm, pull it from my hip and, and intervene in that way. And, and further, having worked with school resource officers so closely for the past five years, um, we know the level of training that, that they undergo. We know the time, uh, the mindset, um, as the other guest is talking about, just, just the familiarity of having that, that firearm with you and, and all of that working consideration that goes into that. That's not something I want to put on a teacher who's already very overburdened, uh, sadly, with, with a lot of tremendous uh, responsibilities. Austin, Colorado has explored this. What do you think? So I'm opposed to it as well, but I do believe that we have to strengthen schools by way of architecture, metal detectors, or perhaps additional security personnel. But I do think that those two functions have to be completely separate. Educators have to focus on education, and security officials need to focus on security. Nicole, uh, with Sandy Hook Promise, you've been looking at ways to harden the response at least. What are you looking at and proposing? Um, Well, I I agree that we need to focus on how do we handle imminent danger, such as school security and the infrastructure of our schools. But I do believe that the shift needs to focus more to prevention. How do we help identify people that are at risk uh, of potentially hurting themselves or others? That's what we offer from Sandy Hook Promise. We're in about 7,000 schools at the moment with our free programs and our free anonymous reporting system. This is a way for teachers, educators, students, and parents to say, this is what I'm recognizing and, and, and this is what I'm seeing, and then have a system to report it. And, and to be honest, in terms of arming teachers, it would be better to arm them with this knowledge and the ability to do that to prevent violence before it happens. And if there's federal funding available for these programs versus arming teachers, I would put it towards the programs or, you know, giving teachers more what they need in terms of supplies or uh, books or arming them with more school counselors as well to help these kids. Andy, I'm going to ask you, you personally face some backlash for your activism and something we're seeing now with these students in Florida. Where does that come from? Uh, there are a, a legion of hoaxers that descend on, they've descended on me like locusts. They've done the same thing with the, the kids in Florida. They call us crisis actors. 
they say Allison is, uh, has had plastic surgery and is living in Israel someplace. You know, the level of cruelty is just unimaginable. Uh, but, you know, it's fueled. If you, all you have to do is look up the street at Pens- on Pennsylvania Avenue. It's enabled by a president that, you know, has unhinged tweets every single day, you know, arming teachers. And so he's enabling this kind, he's, he's helping create this sort of atmosphere that, that, in, that brings upon these people. What did you think of the president's listening session this week? You were there, Nicole. I, I, it, was, it was pathetic, frankly. And then when he comes out with, again, this, this, this crazy notion of arming teachers, teachers are going to quit before they carry a firearm in, in, in class. Uh, I, I, it was when you have to hold a, a note card that says, I hear you. I mean, come on. That's um, I, unimpressive, to say the least. Wow. Uh, talking points are something many walk into a room with to get through that. But I appreciate your passion, all of you, and for coming here to share your personal stories. Thank you. We want all of you uh, to come to Washington today uh, for this conversation. We really appreciate all of you being here and all of you watching. We'll be back. Like what you're hearing? Get even more great content from CBS News Radio podcasts. Listen to TV broadcasts like CBS Evening News and Face the Nation on demand. I'm John Dickerson. And don't miss The Takeout, a politics, policy, and pop culture podcast from CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett. We have our first member of the Trump administration cabinet at our table, Mick Mulvaney. Will you ask the wrong people first? Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play. Welcome back to Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson served two terms in Congress and also consulted for the NRA when they pushed for armed guards at schools after the Newtown shooting. He joins us now in studio. Uh, Your state of Arkansas also experienced a school shooting many years ago in Jonesboro back in 1998. The U.S. doesn't seem to have a monopoly on people with mental health issues, but we seem to have this streak of school shootings. For you, does the response need to be at the federal level or the state level? Primarily at the state level. Uh, whenever you're looking at school safety issues, when you're looking at mental health issues, uh, this is a function that governors can be uniquely engaged in. Uh, I want to focus on the school safety side and to make sure that the children, when they go to school, feel comfortable in their safety as well as the teachers and and officials there. So a lot of work has to be done there. And because, as your previous panel pointed out, we have different uh, thinking in different parts of the country, this is uniquely the role of the states in determining safety. The role of the federal government obviously can spur uh, the issues in terms of uh, grant funding, uh, and and hopefully that will be available to us. But uh, largely the security side and the safety side would be the governors. And in Arkansas, for example, uh, you know we have uh, passed a law to allow some of our rural schools to have armed personnel that has enhanced training, mm-hmm. not just regular concealed weapon training, but enhanced training so they can be responding to an active shooter situation. So we've taken steps in our state and we'll continue to do so. So for you, do you draw a distinction between arming trained staff versus arming educators who are in the classroom with children, as the president has suggested? Well, I draw a distinction, but let me emphasize uh, there has to be some flexibility here. I've always said that teachers should teach and others should protect, but... Uh, you Will you know, tell the president that when you meet with him this week? Well, I'll tell him that, but also, I, I, but there's some teachers who, 
uh, whenever they're looking at options and they've got uh, the training and they've got the temperament and they've they've done what's necessary and if they want to be able to have a uh, protection and have be armed with that training I think that's a prerogative that they should have as well but for example in Clarksville Arkansas one of the schools we have about 13 of them in Arkansas that they've selected staff and it's secret information as to who on their staff has been trained uh, but it could be a uh, it could be a, a coach uh, it could be a janitor, it could be a, a teacher, it could be an assistant principal uh, that has gone through this enhanced training that's available for a quicker response. They couldn't afford to have school resource officers, so this is the direction they chose to go. The f- best response is a trained police officer, but they're not always available quickly in the classroom. What kind of weapons should school personnel be carrying to match the kind of rapid-fire firearm, such as an AR-15 that was used here in Florida? Well, I mean, right now... How do you arm to protect against that? The the children are are trained to throw books at an intruder, anything that they have hands on. So if you have any firearm, it's obviously going to be a better protection. And so uh, the police go in there. They're able to take out uh, with uh, the weapons that they have on their side, uh, you know, a shooter. And so a weapon can do that. Uh, It should be uh, locally decided as to what that weapon is and what the comfort level is with the uh, trained staff. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those are local decisions that have to be made as to what is the best uh, utility. Now, in the the Parkland example, there was an armed resource officer. There were first responders, and and the first deputy on site did not enter the building. Doesn't that undermine this argument that you're making? I mean, you're putting a lot of responsibility and potentially one or a few people here to respond to extraordinary circumstances. Well, it is. It's a tragic set of circumstances there. And as you look back through history, we learn from each one. We learn from the Newtown. We learn from Las Vegas. We learn from what's happened in Florida. And uh, from my background at Homeland Security uh, and in law enforcement, what is important are different layers of security the first one is the point of entry. You've got to make sure that schools are architecturally designed so that you can have security as to people who are not authorized to be there. Single point of entry is the best. Secondly, obviously, the armed uh, police officer, mm-hmm. the school resource officer who's had the greatest level of training uh, should be available. But then a school in their security plan should have additional layers of security a school resource officer might be across the campus. And this is, again, where if a school wanted to have uh, trained personnel that's available uh, closer to the classroom, that should be the option. But that system didn't work in Florida. Well, does that, does that mean we shouldn't have school resource officers? I don't think anybody says that. We've got to improve our systems. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, the FBI makes mistakes. You know, whenever you're looking at the gathering of information and dealing with mental health issues there and the warning signs, we can learn and we've got to do better. But it doesn't mean we should erase uh, the uh, protections and layered security that's in place. We've got to do better. And to me, that is the right debate. How can we better give confidence, better training to our staff, better coordination among our officials, and better tools uh, for uh, those in the classroom. 
Governor, thank you very much for thank your you. time. We turn now to the situation in eastern Ghouta, a Syrian rebel-held suburb of Damascus, where bombing this week has been among the worst in the conflict that is now in its seventh year. President Bashar al-Assad's government forces have bombarded the city, killing at least 500 this week alone, many of them women and children. Yesterday, the U.N. called for an immediate ceasefire, and the U.N. Secretary General has called the situation hell on earth. For some perspective on the situation, we are joined now by Syria Ambassador Frederick Hoff, the former special envoy to Syria, I should say. He is now with the Atlantic Council. Ambassador, uh, we've seen these kind of ceasefires before from the U.N. Is this any different? Uh, Possibly not, unfortunately, Margaret. Uh, There is a long list of uh, U.N. Security Council resolutions uh, instructing Syria to stop this kind of activity, to permit the delivery of uh, humanitarian assistance, both food and medicine. Uh, They've been ignored. Uh, It's good that this resolution was passed. It's good that it was passed unanimously. uh, But the early returns are not good. Uh, bombing is uh, reportedly ongoing as we speak. Now, this is a, a suburb of the capital of yes. Damascus. Yes. Uh, President Trump has called this a humanitarian disgrace, and he publicly blamed Iran. He blamed Russia. He blamed the Assad regime. But he said the U.S. were only there to fight ISIS. Is that the limit of U.S. intervention? Well, possibly not. It, uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, nearly a year ago, in April 2017, uh, the United States uh, intervened very forcefully striking a Syrian airbase in the wake of a sarin nerve agent attack by the Assad regime on civilians in northern Syria. I suspect there are people in eastern Ghouta right now who are saying, please, Mr. Assad, attack us with sarin, because if you do, perhaps the world will come to our assistance. I think it's Mistaken. It's a pretty cynical take to well, say that it's, the, uh, the well, method of killing is going yeah, to make a difference here. Yeah, well, the, uh, the master of cynicism in all this is Bashar al-Assad. Uh, he carefully takes the measure of everyone who comes up against him. Uh, he concluded with respect to uh, President Obama, if I don't use sarin gas, I can use anything I want. Is it that same calculation with President Trump? I'm afraid it is uh, right now. I'm afraid that Assad is uh, testing this president's uh, chemical red line. He's weaponizing the use of chlorine, uh, which, although is not uh, not deadly, uh, is nevertheless a very, very powerful instrument of terror. Now, right now, the U.S. has about 2,000 troops in Syria. That's not a lot. Right. Uh, And we've got about 12 diplomats. Yeah. Uh, the, the president used very strong rhetoric. Do the resources match that rhetoric? Uh, this, is, uh, this is, again, this, we're going to have to see if the resources match uh, the strategy. Secretary of State Tillerson gave a, a very powerful speech at uh, Stanford University a couple of weeks ago about Syrian strategy. Uh, but the question is, who's going to do the heavy lift, the heavy and sustained lift required to stabilize Syria east of the Euphrates River, land that's been taken from ISIS, and and the heavy lift that's going to be required to protect Syrian civilians, uh, because the lack of protection is is a humanitarian and a geopolitical catastrophe. Now, for Americans, when they hear U.S. involvement, they want to limit U.S. intervention for their own 
safety. Why does this need to matter? Why do people need to know what is happening right now outside Damascus? Well, Margaret, nobody, nobody that I know of is talking about violent regime change or the United States invading and occupying the, uh, the Assad part of, uh, of Syria. Uh, the U.N. resolution passed yesterday said that ongoing violence directed against civilians is a threat to the peace and security of the region. This kind of mass homicide campaign encourages extremists. It undermines our friends and allies in the region and beyond. Witness the uh, migration crisis in Europe. In 2015, the refugees who, uh, and this really roiled European politics, the politics of democracy, all, all to the... Uh, to the delight of Mr. Putin and the Kremlin. Is President Trump's calculus here that he can work with Vladimir Putin correct? I don't, uh, I don't begrudge the administration doing all of the diplomatic due diligence to see if it's possible. John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, chased the Russians for a year and a half and never did catch them. What happens over the next few days and the next few weeks in eastern Luta will tell us, I think, whether or not there's any there there in terms of working uh, with the Russians. They really need to get their client out of this uh, dirty business. Ambassador Hoff, thank you very much for joining us. And be sure to tune in tonight to 60 Minutes. Our Scott Pelley will bring you a powerful report on that Assad regime sarin gas attack in Syria last April and the continued onslaught there. Don't have time to keep up with the news? Try the CBS News Radio app on your iOS or Android device. You'll get the latest news as soon as you start it up. It's that easy. You can also listen to great programming like Face the Nation, Weekend Roundup, or the CBS Evening News. And good evening. Wall Street today signaled its approval of the tax cuts passed by the Republican-controlled Congress. You can even download them straight to your phone and listen later. It's all on the CBS News Radio app for iOS or Android. Download it today. Time now for some analysis. Rehan Salam is the executive editor of the National Review and a policy fellow at the National Review Institutes. We want to welcome Shauna Thomas to the broadcast. She is the Washington bureau chief at Vice News. David Nakamura covers the White House for the Washington Post, and Rachel Bade covers Congress for Politico. Thanks to all of you for coming here. President's going to hold this two-week listening session. Rehan, is this about buying time or is this about building policy? Well, I think that there has been a shift in the politics of the gun issue, uh, partly because you see different patterns of gun ownership in the country. And I think that it takes a crystallizing moment like this to lead to a change. And President Trump has demonstrated that he's frankly pretty flexible on the issue. He's expressed a variety of different opinions. And I think it's quite possible that we'll see some movement on some limited gun regulation measures. Some limited movement, (laughs) Rachel. uh, Congressional leadership doesn't seem energized on this like the president does. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say that the likelihood of Congress passing gun control measures anytime soon is probably about as likely as President Trump himself deleting his Twitter account. Uh, It's not (laughs) going to happen, right? Um, There's energy, yes, right now following the Florida shooting. And you do see some Republicans, particularly in Florida, you just interviewed Brian Mast, opening the door to potentially doing some gun control measures. But these folks are the minority right now in Congress. Republicans can call Congress, and they do not see guns as the problem here. These are Second Amendment enthusiasts who, I kid you not, carry pictures around on their phones of, you know, their latest kill from hunting. They don't think guns are the problem here. I do think we could hear them talk about how this guy fell through the 
slipped through the cracks? You know, did the FBI, what did they miss here, this tip that they had that they didn't follow through on? I think we could hear them talk about safety and schools, but I think they'll say that that is a state issue. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I mean, you ha you're going to have to forget about an assault weapons ban. Uh, universal background checks isn't going anywhere. And even this notion of increasing the age to get an assault weapon, it's not going to pass Congress. I mean, Except, the, sorry, go ahead. David. One of the things I think is instructive is sort of how this uh, immigration debate played out, the idea that the president was flexible, doing something on immigration, giving a path to citizenship. Uh, but when it came down to it, could he give the cover um, to Republicans uh, who were concerned that he seems they could to be, be trying here. And well, the idea, right? So we see the initial signs that he's he's willing to talk about gun control in a different way, and he's told staff from, from what we've reported in our newspaper uh, that he wants to go forward on maybe a, a proposal as controversial as raising the age limit to buy guns from 18 to 21. He said, "Let's go for that. We'll praise the NRA um, to keep that that portion of our base happy." But when it comes down to sort of campaigning and giving that kind of cover, we haven't seen the president really do that level of. Uh, sort of engagement. Just to be clear, you don't think that fix next could happen? You don't think that's a measure to tighten background checks? To be clear on that, so the president came out this week and said he would back a background checks provision that basically fixes uh, ensuring that agencies are reporting people who cannot have these weapons to the background check system. This is the Cornyn Murphy bill. Yes, the Cornyn bill. However, I spoke with Jim Jordan, a conservative of the Freedom Caucus, the day after the president came out and supported this, and he said there's no way he's going to back it. He said, um, you know, this is a provision that would let bureaucrats take away the civil liberties of Americans, and that's exactly what you're going to hear from a lot of Republicans on the Hill. I think perhaps it could pass the Senate with bipartisan support. Ryan will have to make a difficult decision. Does he want to put this on the floor where it probably would pass? But then he's going to get heat from the right. But I think the difference right now is that over the last week, we saw those students uh, march on Tallahassee. Exactly. Congress has been out of session this past week. They haven't had to sort of deal with the amount of media that you get when you're actually inside the Capitol. That's this week. This mm -hmm. is coming. And so it's going to be a little bit more difficult in the face of those teenagers, especially if people start showing up in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. to say we are not going to do anything. I agree. The fix Nix bill has a hard time passing through the House. The version that is in the Senate right now also has a concealed carry provision in it, right, right. which is not going to go anywhere in the no. Senate. But it is good that at least John Cornyn is talking to the president about this. And there is something that can be done about our background check system because there are so many holes and states need help and money to try to fix some of those Well, holes. Sean, it, people are so interested in this student activism that you mentioned, the march on Tallahassee. There's going to be a march here in Washington uh, on the 24th of the next month. Does that sustain the momentum enough? Or is this so politically toxic when a lot of people in Congress are facing upcoming elections that they won't want to go near this? Well, this, this is a different moment because of those teenagers. Is it sustainable? I have to admit... I'm surprised to a certain extent, because I'm a cynical Washington, D.C. person, that we are still having this conversation on Face the Nation today, um, and that we are still seeing that there are reporters in Florida because the, the news cycle is so fast right now. It's kind of, in some ways, up to those students, and they have the power of social media. They are a known commodity to media outlets. They come here. They are going to get interviews. They go to the Capitol. They are going to be seen on camera. It, in some ways, it's up to them, because I do not necessarily think, especially since it's an election year, 
this will be run from a political angle. This strikes me as a fascinating phenomenon happening in our politics more broadly. Uh, when you have an issue that's a very familiar issue, that's understood as a kind of culture war issue, suddenly you introduce a class of people who identify as victims, uh, those loved ones of victims, and they change the political dynamic. What happens then, however, is that you realize that there are folks on the other side of this too. There are victims of violence who care very deeply about firearms and gun rights as a matter of self-defense and self-protection. Mm -hmm. Now, during that first phase, you know, you change the conversation because no one wants to argue with someone who's been traumatized, someone who's been victimized. But the truth is that that might wind up distorting our conversation because we can't forget that there are people who feel very strongly, have a deep emotional investment in this issue on the other side, too. We see so, that with dreamers and angel moms, and I think that this is something that's going to define American politics for a very long time because narratives and personal stories are compelling. So then is the president going to have to rely on the governors he meets with this week rather than the, the lawmakers here in Washington to get done the thing? Things he says he wants to get done. I do think that governors are a really important part of this. For example, talking about arming teachers. This has become a huge contentious question right now, right? But also, you know, Texas has a school marshals program. The idea is that there are rural districts. There are, you know, places right. where you don't necessarily have the resources, and you have people who receive rigorous training, just as you have air marshals. Uh, now, when you think about it that way, it depolarizes the issue. It changes the context in a way that could actually be pretty constructive at the state and local level, not necessarily as a national culture war issue. But in some ways, that does make that does make President Trump's desire to arm teachers or talk about arming teachers who are qualified the perfect issue for him to go forth with, because that's not something that you're going to do on the federal level. That is something that states and localities and all the myriad of gun laws that we have out there are going to control. And so he can say, hey, I want to do this in schools and now leave it to the states and he can run on that. And that's something that the NRA isn't going to go against either necessarily. It's, it is, in some ways, the perfect issue for him. But to Ron's point, actually, if you looked at the president's listening session at, at the White House, which mm -hmm. was pretty extraordinary in that it lasted an hour. And it was, was broad broadcast live. Broadcast live. Um, you saw the, exactly what Ron's saying, which was that some of the parents were really, and students, were pushing for, directly for gun control measures. Uh, but there was a father who stood up who had lost a daughter in the shooting at Soman Douglas, who argued very passionately uh, about his perspective as a father who was a uh, grieving, but also then said very emphatically that he supported this idea that Trump had to arm teachers. David, I want to ask you, you talked about immigration mm -hmm. quickly. I want to look at this March 5th deadline. The president's been tweeting a bunch about dreamers and how he's the only one pushing. Are we going to see the same kind of activism that, that Rayan just mentioned on this as we face that deadline? It's, it's an interesting deadline because, of course, this was the idea that the uh, work permits would begin to run out in mass. Trump said this deadline six months ago, uh, and this was supposed to create some sort of action on the Hill. We saw the White House actively undermine a bipartisan uh, bill that went forward uh, and backed a different bill for Senator Grassley. I do think we're going to see a lot of activism. Uh, the question is, though, the courts have actually put an injunction, so the, the deadline is not as hard as it had been. So we're not going to see those um, work permits run out as, as we thought. Uh, so that could bide a little bit more time. Uh, the, but it doesn't look very uh, likely that any kind of big immigration bill will go forward. You agree with that, Rachel? Yeah, I think uh, they're definitely struggling right now on Capitol Hill. There's been a little bit of talk about potentially extending the DACA deadline for one year for a little bit of uh, border wall money. Um, there is a, a, a bill in the Senate that is gaining traction uh, by John Thune, who basically would propose doing um, three-year extensions for these DACA kids for about $25 billion worth of wall money. I know conservatives in the House are particularly worried that that's going to move because they don't think 
the wall is enough for them to back, you know, a continuation of this program. Um, so, you know, they're basically going nowhere fast, um, and this deadline is coming. They've definitely got some work to do. What do people need to know about this debate over security clearances and the question as to whether John Kelly will continue to give Jared Kushner one? Well, the president was asked directly about it, put it on John Kelly and said he'll defer the decision. But, I mean, it seems likely that Kelly would do but what should people what be alarmed? The Government Accountability Office came out just a couple of weeks ago and said that this is now a high-risk program. Uh, obviously, the Government Accountability Office is this watchdog group that looks at various parts of the federal government. And they came out and said giving interim security clearances just for, you know, months and months at a time actually imposes on the U.S. national security. It could hurt the national security. So I think we're going to see the Oversight Committee on the Hill continue to look at this, um, and it's not going to, the pressure's going to be up. It's not going to go another, anywhere. Forgive me, please. All right, I mean, the issue really is, are some of these people blackmailable? And this is sort of what we saw with Rob Porter, right, who is alleged, <clears throat> who is alleged to uh, beat mm-hmm. his wives. Um, and because of that, it made him subject to possible blackmail. The question is, is there something in Kushner's history that makes him subject to blackmail that also is keeping him from getting this security clearance? Right. And if that is the case, which I'm not saying it is, that is the case, should he have access to this information? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the deadline, I think, was last Friday to sort of where John Kelly said he would yeah. cut off that. Um, but we have to just we have to see whether the White House pushes forward on this. All right. Thanks to all of you. We have to leave it there. So much more to talk about. Uh, but thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us be part of your Sunday morning. And it is a special one for me. I'm privileged to say that I'm joining the Face the Nation team as moderator. And in this role, I plan to carry on the tradition of civil conversations and the tough but fair questions that you've come to expect each week here at Face the Nation. Thanks to my CBS family for the warm welcome, and I hope you'll continue to join us. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were Representatives Ted Deutsch and Brian Mast. We also spoke with Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, former Special Envoy to Syria Ambassador Frederick Hoff, and parents of victims and survivors of Sandy Hook, Columbine, and other incidents involving gun violence. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Faber. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books. Always on the go? Now you can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews with today's leading figures in politics, business, and entertainment in the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. Available every weekday wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. 
This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.